The last book of the Bible is called the book of Revelation because it's a revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. We learned that on night number one. And the reason that we can demonstrate the Bible is trustworthy is Bible prophecy itself. God says there is no God besides me. No one else can declare like I do. I will lay things before you, and when you see it fulfilled, you will know who I am, and I am the one true God. That was night number one. The Bible prophecy demonstrates Scripture's credibility. Okay? Now, night number two was the talking about the great hope that the book of Revelation provides. In the beginning of the book of Revelation and at the close of the book of Revelation, we see this repeated, in fact, the most often repeated promise in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is coming soon. Behold, I come quickly. Surely I'm coming quickly, Jesus says. Three times in the very last chapter, he says, I am coming quickly. And we looked at the signs of his coming that Jesus himself declared And we see that the signs are, in fact, increasing in intensity and frequency, just as Jesus Christ said they would. Now, nights three, four, and five, we devoted to a study of the central theme of the book of Revelation, the heart of Revelation. When Revelation chapter 12 talks about, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the whole storyline of what we come to term the great controversy, this big battle, this cosmic struggle behind the scenes that even led to the need for Jesus coming as a Savior. Why did Jesus have to come at all? Well, because there was this epic battle, this great controversy, which, of course, was not a war of weapons, but instead was a war of words. It was a struggle of ideas, a battle for the loyalties of God's created beings. We're going to be filling about, going back to that theme a little bit more tonight. And we, of course, concluded that Jesus was the answer to all of Satan's accusations. And when he died on the cross, the universe saw for the very first time the true character of God manifest in giving himself for those who had fallen and also the character of Satan, that he was, just like Jesus said, a liar and a murderer from the beginning. It revealed the character of Christ and his enemy. Speaking of his enemy, we went to nights number six and seven, where just as God has his representative on the earth, Jesus Christ, to truly manifest who God is, Satan has his representative on the earth, the Antichrist. Just as Jesus Christ is worshipped as the true God, the Antichrist wants to be worshipped in the temple of God, that is the church, and be regarded as God. We saw this in nights number two, uh, six and seven, First, who the Antichrist isn't, declare the way the cobwebs, and then see who the Antichrist is according to the Word of God. Then, we started looking in nights 8, 9, and 10 about this concept that just before Jesus comes, which again is the great hope of the book of Revelation, the corresponding book of Daniel and Revelation as well, point out that there's going to be a judgment prior to the second coming. That after Christ's first coming... But before his second coming would be this hour of judgment, this time of judgment, this pre-advent or prior to the coming of Christ's judgment. The first message in that series was blood in God's tent. And we saw how the sanctuary, the Old Testament sanctuary, which of course is just a pattern of the real one in heaven, is an outline of Christ's ministry in our behalf. He was the lamb that was raised in the the camp, He was the sacrificial lamb offered on the altar. He was the priest who went into heaven by the merits of his own blood. And now he is our judge before God, carving out his kingdom before he returns with his reward with him. Right? So that's what we looked at in nights 8, 9, and 10. And tonight, on night number 11, we look at the standard of, by which we are judged in that judgment. Now, of course, we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? However, God does not simply save us and then call us good. He actually wants to make us good, right? And so there's a standard by which we will be judged. Tonight, we're going to explore that standard, which, of course, is the very law of God. And if you recall, from the sanctuary picture, again, Christ is a lamb raised in the camp, spent his life, Sinless, yet from places like Nazareth. He was sacrificed in the courtyard of this earth. 
the altar sacrifices where the lamb was slain. Then he steps into heaven as the priest. And then now he's in the most holy place as priest and judge before he takes off his priestly vestments and puts on his kingly garb and comes back as a conquering king to collect his kingdom. Right now, he's in that process of determining who genuinely are his so that when he comes, he says, and my reward is with me. Now, in that sanctuary motif, that picture, there's one piece of furniture. This is a pop quiz for you. One piece of furniture in the most holy place. Can anyone tell me what that piece of furniture is? The Ark of the Covenant. It represents the very throne of God. That's where God's presence dwelled. What's it called? The Shekinah glory, the full radiance and brightness and splendor of God. No one could go in there. In fact, only one person could go in. That was the high priest. And then only once a year on the Day of Atonement, right? The cleansing of the sanctuary. But inside of this ark, it wasn't just a hollow box for no reason. And it wasn't a solid piece. It was empty but it was hollow for a purpose. Inside of this box, of this ark, was placed what object? The Ten Commandment Law of God, which establishes the very throne of God. God's standard in the judgment will be His law. God has a universe that He operates by His own commands, and He says, if you're going to be My people, will you actually fit into the kingdom that I'm building? Will you be in rebellion? Because we faced rebellion before, right? Or will you be obedient? Tonight, we're going to take a look at this law of God, which is the standard by which we'll be judged in the judgment. Are everyone with me so far? Praise God. Now, before we do any study in God's Word, what do we need to do first? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for such a beautiful day. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity to come together And thank you for having a plan of redemption and marking it out in advance so that every one of us who has fallen, in which the Bible says is all of us, and come short of the glory of God can be restored, can be returned and brought back to your kingdom. Lord, now help us to understand why your law is so important to you, what it entails, and help us to never for a moment see Obedience as legalism, but instead loyalty to the God that we love. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us begin with a book of Revelation. Now, each message, hopefully, is grounded in this message at the end of God's Word, preparing a people for His soon coming. In Revelation chapter 12, I'm going to show you several passages in the book of Revelation here that repeat this same theme. That those faithful people who are looking forward to the coming of Christ have one thing in common. And it's not just that they love Jesus, it's they actually obey Jesus. That love always leads to obedience, right? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 describes God's faithful people at the end time with these words. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Of course, the dragon's not God's people, right? (laughs) But he's enraged with the woman and he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, this is the very last passage here, and we'll we'll be studying this out later on, but there's a, a woman in Bible prophecy always represents the church. The dragon is the devil, and he's angry with God's people, right? And he goes off to make war with the rest or the remnant of her seed, and it defines who those are. Those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We're going to have an entire message, by the way, on what is the testimony of Jesus Christ, but what does it mean to obey God's commandments? You don't need a magic decoder ring for that. Those who simply keep the word of God, who obey what he says, who keep the commandments of God. Now, look at this again. Revelation chapter 14. Just turn to the right a couple pages. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. Notice what we see here. Looking forward to the coming of Jesus, it describes God's people this way. Here is the patience of whom? The saints. Now, the saints, the righteous or the wicked? Righteous. These are the good guys, yes? These are the loyal people to God. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who what? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So apparently, 
God's people are repeatedly called those who keep the commandments of God. Let's look one more time. Revelation chapter 22. The very last page. The very last chapter. The same place where Christ three times says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Look what else is told to us here. Revelation chapter 22, and look at verse 14. Blessed are those who what? Do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Repeatedly, we see that God's faithful people are identified as those who keep his commandments. Very simply put. Now go back just before the book of Revelation, uh, just a couple pages back to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, the same John who wrote Revelation is writing these letters to us, the same human author, but in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, this is a great text, remember, 1 John 2, 3, 4, okay? 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4, look what the same author writes, now by this we know him, if we do what? Keep his commandments. In fact, he goes on to say, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a... And the truth is not in him. Woo! I tell you, some of these Bible writers said some things. Now, there are a lot of people who claim to be good people, claim to be even God's people, but they're not keeping his law. And according to John, this is not according to me, but according to God's word, through the messenger John... He says those who claim to be gods yet refuse to obey God's law are not telling the truth. In fact, they are liars. Mm. Apparently, God's people are identified by their keeping of God's law. Very plain and simple. Very plain and simple. Now, what is the big deal with the keeping of the law? Why is that such a big deal? Well, what is the law? Let's figure that out. Why is this the bedrock of his government? Now, we're going to do a little study tonight. We're going to see, show you some texts, hopefully that you've seen over and over, but I want to demonstrate something that's in Scripture that you can see. John chapter 3 and verse 16. I'm guessing there's a few people here tonight could quote this verbatim, but let's make sure it's still in the Bible. Amen. John chapter, if you have a Bible that doesn't have John 3, 16, friends, you don't have a Bible. (laughs) John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, what I want you to notice, and keep these in mind as we go through our worksheet tonight, our study guide, notice the language I've left out of the text that I'd like you to fill in with a pencil or a pen. Fill in the blanks, even right there with John 3.16. God so loved the world that he, what's that verb? Gave. I want you to see this. There is a construct, a linguistic construct, a phrasing that's used over and over in the Bible to define what love is. And love always manifests in giving of oneself for others. God so loved the world that he gave. And the Bible, by the way, we've looked at this before, doesn't merely say that God is loving or that God is lovely. It says that God is what? Love. Love is the singular, the highest, the clearest attribute of the character of God that God is love. Therefore, it makes sense that God so loved that he gave. Giving selflessness is the culmination, it's the manifestation of true love. So it makes sense that if God is love, that if there were people, his creatures, his creation that was in trouble, that he would give what it would take to get them back. God so loved that he gave. Let's look at another one. Go to the book of Galatians, to the right. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, in verse 20, look at this beautiful passage here. Galatians chapter 2, 
The Apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives where? In me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And now he's going to tell us something about this Son of God. Who loved me and what? Gave himself for me. Remember he says he's the Son of God and you know he's the Son of God because he loves and that love is manifested in giving. For God so loved that he gave his Son and the Son so loved that he gave himself. Very clear. Let's look at another one. By the way, we're filling these in, yes? It's the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's go to the right one book. Ephesians, Galatians, then Ephesians. If you get to Philippians, put on the brakes and back up. Ephesians chapter 5. A little practical counsel to husbands and wives, but in the middle of this counsel, he tells us why he's giving this counsel. Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 25. He says, husbands do what? Love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself for her. By the way, wives, wouldn't it be great? And maybe you have this in your life. If you have a man, a husband in your life who will give himself, it's a beautiful thing. And Paul says, the love of Christ for the church should be the framework, should be the template of how you love each other. Namely, husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Repeatedly, this construct is used that love is the giving of yourself for someone else. In fact, John chapter 15 and verse 3, Jesus puts it this way. John chapter 15 and verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 13, 15, verse 13. It's a beautiful, lovely sound just rippling through. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no man than this. So here's the ultimate culmination of all love, the greatest love you can have than to lay down one's what? Life for his friends. The greatest expression of love is giving of yourself. Greater love has no man than this. Now you can say things, you can give a gift, you can say affirming words. You can, he said, but if you really want to see love, love is truly manifest when you give of yourself for someone else. Love is the giving of yourself for others. Now, why are we doing this, talking about love, when we're talking about the law of God? I thought we were going to talk about the Ten Commandments and obedience and whatnot, and here we are pontificating on love. Well, because love is the character of God. It is who he is, and apparently he wants people who are like him. And in the judgment, that's the question. Are you like God? Now, what does that have to do with the law? Well, let's go look at the law. The Ten Commandment law, the one that God spoke to his people, wrote down with his own finger on tables of stone. We go to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus, chapter 20, records for us God's Ten Commandment law. The very Ten Commandments that God had memorialized on stone and kept in that Ark of the Covenant. And I don't know if you've ever read through the Ten Commandments. I hope that you have. Some perhaps have memorized them. Some have never looked at them at all. So I don't know what spectrum of background we have in here. But basically, there are Ten Commandments. Okay? But it's not just an abstract, random, oh yeah, and do this, and do this, and do this, and don't do this, and don't do this. God is conveying something about himself in the giving of his law. Okay? The law, I believe, is a transcript or a written version of the very character of God because God is love and love does what? Gives. It thinks about others. It puts others ahead of self. It is selfless. And if you were to go through the Ten Commandment law of God, you would find this selflessness 
expected of God's people. You would find selflessness expected of God's people. For example, the first four commandments talk about one's duty to God. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't, take the, don't make graven images to other gods. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember my day, holy. Not your day, my day. First four outline our duty to God. The last six outline our duty to our fellow man. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill, don't steal. He goes down the list of all the things that we need to do to honor others, to respect their life, their property, their person, is on us. But you know what you don't find in the Ten Commandments? You never see a commandment that says, you take care of you. The first table of God's law is our duty to God. The second table is our duty to our fellow man. And there's not one that outlines a duty to yourself. It's all about giving to others. Giving do what is God and keep respecting and honoring that is, which is do others, right? I'm looking out for my relationship with God. I'm looking out for my relationship with other people. Never once am I commanded to keep up with me. Now, I know people want to say that somewhere in God's word it says, look out for number one. i got to take care of me first, but it's not in there. Our number one duty is to God, and secondarily, as an extension of that, is to his fellow men. The creator and the creation, those are our two areas. But there's no, take care of you. The law of God is a document of selflessness. It's fascinating. Again, going back here, Exodus chapter 20. The first table of God's law outlines our duty to whom? God. While the second table outlines our duty to our fellow man, right? Thus, God's law is simply an explanation of love, selflessness, right? It tells us what love looks like. It's putting others ahead of me, giving to God what is due him, giving man what is due him, and trusting that God will take care of me. I don't look out for me. God does. Others do. By the way, if I'm not taking care of my life, who's looking out for it? my fellow man, because he's not going to kill me. If he's keeping God's law, I'm safe. Who's going to look out for my property? My fellow man. Because if he's keeping God's law, he won't covet it, and he won't steal it. Who's going to look after my wife? Watch it now. <laughs> According to God's law, my neighbor. Because he's not going to covet, nor is he going to try to steal or adulterate. He's not. Who's going to honor my... I'm going to honor my parents. See what I'm saying? That God's law is an expression of selflessness, which is the very heart of God. It's a powerful thought. But the law of God, his Ten Commandments, are not an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. They are a very expression of the heart of God. And God, in his seat of judgment, encased in that Ark of the Covenant, the foundation of his kingdom is this principle of selflessness. Principle of selflessness. Look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 in the New Testament, Jesus explains this principle of the law starting in verse 35. Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 35. Matthew 22, starting with verse what? 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, and remember, this is not attorney at law, esquire, right? This is a law of God expert. Now think about this. This is the law of God expert speaking to the author of God's law. Should be an interesting conversation, yeah? Then a lawyer asked him a question. For what purpose? Testing him. And saying, teacher... Which is, the greatest, which is the great commandment in the law? Which one is the best? Which my higher? And you know some people do that sometimes. They'll say, all right, I'm going to rank them in order. Which one is the best and which one is eh? So there's a premise of his question that Christ has to reject. And notice what he explains. He teaches them about the bigger principle of the law. 
Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what he says. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. This is the greatest commandment. He didn't take one above the other. He said, let me tell you the great principle behind all ten. Love for God, love for your fellow men. This is Christ, the lawgiver, explaining the law to a lawyer. Interesting. And then watch what he says. Continuing on. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets, by the way, is an expression that not just means the Ten Commandment law or even just the books of Moses. It's the whole Old Testament scripture, which to the time of Jesus was the scripture in its entirety. He said all the Bible is hung on this principle of love God, love your fellow man, selflessness. Selflessness. Matthew chapter 7. Turn back just a few chapters, if you would, to the left. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus encapsulates this principle in what we call the golden what? The golden rule. The principle of all principles. The the E equals MC squared of heaven, if you will. (laughs) It is the formula that makes it all work. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. Therefore, look how simple this is. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And then what does he say? For this is what? The law and the prophets. This thing I've just boiled down in one sentence, he says, let me summarize it. By the way, if someone were to ask you, could you summarize the entire Old Testament in one sentence? Christ did. And he says, it's simple. Whatever you want people to do to you, you do to them. You take care of them like you'd want to take care of yourself. But instead of taking care of yourself, you take care of them. See what I'm saying? And he says, this is the entire law and the prophets. You memorize this one sentence, you've got the whole character of God. The whole purpose of the plan of redemption. And that's what's in God's law, and that's the standard of judgment. Okay? Now let's keep going. Let's keep going. Still in Matthew, this time back to the right, Matthew chapter 16. Of course, Jesus on the cross demonstrated the selfless character of God. Amen? That he would give anything, including the life of God itself, were it possible, to save any one of us. And then Christ turns to his disciples and said, fine, if you want to be like me, if you want to follow me, this is what's expected of you. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, what's the very first rule? Let him do what? Deny himself. Now does that mean that you should not eat, you shouldn't sleep, you shouldn't care for yourself, you shouldn't dress, you should waste away to nothing? Is that what he's saying? No. But he's saying... Don't put you first, put others first. Deny yourself, take up your cross, which of course the cross is that symbol of selfless sacrifice, right? And then do what? Follow me. If you deny yourself, take up your cross, then you follow me. A follower of Jesus, I know this is going to seem radical, is like Jesus. Yeah? Thus Jesus says, I'm going to take up my cross, and if you want to follow me, you take up your cross. Just like I denied myself, Jesus could have come here as King of kings, Lord of lords, and been worshipped by every animate and inanimate being. Every object in heaven and earth should have fallen down. But he said, look, no, no, no. I'm going to deny myself, be a servant, and give myself for others. He says, if you want to be like me, you take up your cross, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Very simple. Difficult to employ, right? (laughs) Sounds simple. But think of what it means in our lives. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 13. Back to our book of Revelation. See that this concept is continued right into the very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 13. Oh, I'm sorry, not Revelation. I'm sorry, Romans. 
We're getting to the book of Revelation, I promise. (laughs) But Romans first. Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul comes back to this theme over and over. Look at verse 8. Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. He says, Oh, no one anything except to do what? To love one another. For he who loves another has what? Fulfilled the law. Now, is he saying just love instead of keeping God's law? No. But he's saying the law itself is expressed in the giving of yourself for others. He who loves has fulfilled the law. Where did he get that? I believe from Jesus, right? He who loves has fulfilled the law. It's very simple. Again, the Apostle Paul, this time in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. See if it doesn't sound like Jesus Christ again. Galatians chapter 5, in verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. What do you think that word is? Love. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said that's what real love looks like. Selfless giving for others. There's an illustration I like a lot. An artist was one time, so the story goes, commissioned to paint a picture, in fact, paint two pictures, one picture of heaven and one picture of hell. What do I draw for heaven? What do I draw for hell? My goodness, what do I draw? Then the idea struck him, and he began to draw. And he drew both at the same time. In the picture of heaven, a great big, long, beautiful banquet table, lush surroundings, like just verdure and Eden green all around. It looked like Muskegon on a nice summer day. This banquet table is heaped with every good, healthy, beautiful, tasty, wonderful delight that heaven could offer. Oh, beautiful. Picture of hell, identical picture. Lush surround, no flames, no charred, broil, anything. Just everything is beautiful, green, wonderful, long banquet table, heaped with good, delicious, beautiful food. Goes back to the picture of heaven. Everyone in heaven, he puts people around this table, smiling, happy, healthy, well-fed, strong people. And in the picture of hell, puts people around the table, but here's where the difference comes in. They're all weak and emaciated, miserable. It's a technical theological term. But it was gross. Now, what made the difference? Now, something you know. In both of these paintings, he depicted the people in the paintings with the same physical malady. None of the people had functional elbows. Okay? They had a shoulder joint that worked, right? And their wrist worked. Fingers worked. That's all they got. Okay? I guess that's all they got. (laughs) Same scenario same deficiency, yet the people in heaven just happy-go-lucky having the time of their lives, healthy, strong, nourished. The people in hell, weak, emaciated, sickly, pale, awful. But they both had the same problem. And here's what made the difference. In hell, the people there could not figure out how to eat. Kept grabbing the food. (laughs) tossing it. <laughs> but they couldn't get the food in their mouths. And they sat there and uh, dwindled away to nothing. Where the people in heaven didn't miss a beat. Right? They never once considered even feeding themselves. In feeding others, they trusted that somehow they'd be taken care of. And sure enough, right on time, There came that apple. 
The difference is in hell's depiction, the people were focused on what? Themselves. And their number one priority was taking care of them. Where in heaven, their number one priority was taking care of others. And this is the character God is looking for in the people who will inhabit his kingdom. Will you demonstrate the principles of the law of God and giving to God what is God, to man's what is man's, regardless of how you think, feel, or any other objection, you'll just do because that's what you do. You're like Jesus. Now, let's flip over the paper now. Study guide. This helps us make sense as to why Lucifer started really not liking heaven and came to war particularly against God's law. Satan has a very poignant beef against God and his law in particular. Why is that? Let's go to the book of Isaiah. Why is he so upset about the law? Why does he make that the testing point? Why does he make that the issue? Isaiah chapter 14, starting with verse 12. This takes us all the way back to our first week. But we read, looking at the fall of Lucifer, what was going on in his mind? What was happening inside of him? The prophet writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You who are cut, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said, where? In your heart. Remember, these principles were on the inside, but what was churning in there? I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will be like whom? The Most High. Some people have pointed out that Satan had an I problem, right? Everything was focused on him. I want to be great. I want to be recognized. I want to be worshipped. And you look all the way through. Satan wants to be like God. He comes to Christ in the wilderness. Just bow down and worship me. And God quotes to Christ quotes to him the law of God. Serve the Lord. Love the Lord. Serve him and him only. Satan doesn't like that because he wants for him, right? One of my favorite authors puts it this way. In heaven, there's this circuit of beneficence where everyone gives to the next person, the next person gives to the next person, the next person gives to the next person, the next person. But when Satan comes along, Lucifer in his heart put a short in that circuit. At some point, instead of taking to give, he just took to take. But he looks at that law of God and it tells that selfishness is not how God's kingdom operates. The principles you like, that you've loved, don't work there. God's government, here's our fill in the blank, God's government is selfless, but Satan's heart became selfish. That's why we have the weird title of tonight's message. Sin is a four-letter word. You're just like, no, 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 I can count, preacher, right? S-I-N, three letters, right? But the heart of sin, the heart of the rebellion in heaven is the transgression of God's law, which sin, according to Scripture, is the transgression of God's law, yes? And what is sin? Sin is the seeking of self instead of seeking for others. Sin is a four-letter word, S-E-L-F, self. And in heaven, this very law was broken. Started seeking for himself. And it didn't work in God's government. God's government is selfless, but Satan's heart became selfish. So let's put our pieces together here a little bit. God's law is the foundation of that government. God's government is built, as we see in the sanctuary here, The throne of God is built upon the foundation of his law. And his law is simply a transcript of his character. It's who he is that he gives for others. And his law says you should do the same. God's law is the foundation of his government, a written version of who he is. When Satan beholds the law and its principles, its commands, Put God first, put others first, but he wants himself first, right? When he beholds the law of God, he sees God's what? Character. 
He sees God for who he is when he looks at the law. The law is a transcript of his character, simply a written-down version of who he is. It's almost like looking into God's face, looking right at him. God's law is a continual reminder of God's purity and Satan's own evil character. No wonder Satan hates it. Because the law is basically like looking at God himself. And he does not like God because God tells him what to do and he wants to do for himself. He wants to do what he wants to do. Doesn't like his expectations. Doesn't like his regulations. Doesn't like his commandments. It doesn't fit his own twisted character of self-serving. Thus we see in Daniel chapter 7. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Going back to prophecy now as we look at that antichrist power, that little horn, that papal power so often clearly foretold in Scripture, look what his activities would be when given an opportunity to basically rule the world during that 1,260 years of time. What would be his activities? Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. Remember the antichrist is simply Satan's representative on the earth, the counterfeit to Jesus Christ. And what does he try to do? He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Does that sound like Satan himself? Yes, we just read it in Isaiah chapter 14. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And of course, God gives himself for others, but Satan wants to take. God blesses, Satan wants to curse. Shall persecute the saints of the High, and shall intend, or some versions say, shall think to do what? Change times and what? I want to change that law. Don't like the law. Don't want it to reflect God and his holiness, his purity, his greatness, his creatorship, his authorship, his dominion over me. I want to rule for me. And so one of the activities that Satan has the Antichrist little horn power do is not only talk big, and hurt people instead of bless them, but attack the very law of God. How can I get people unfaithful to God and more faithful to me? How can I twist that around and move them off of that foundation? Now, sometimes Christians, oddly enough, don't like to talk about the law of God. Oh, that's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. That's old, old, old. We're living in a new era. New Covenant. New Testament. New believers. The law is old and done away with, but now the story goes. But I want to demonstrate some things from Scripture to you tonight. James chapter 1. Again, headed back towards the book of Revelation. The Apostle James and first chapter of his epistle, James chapter 1. Notice what this New Testament author says. We'll start with verse 21. James chapter 1, we'll start with verse 21. Notice his counsel to these New Covenant, New Testament believers. Therefore, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted, what? Word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not just hearers only, and by so doing, what does it say you will do? Deceive yourself. Apparently, it is a deception to think you can simply hear God's word and then not obey it, and still think you are a child of God. I'll say that again. It's apparently it's self-deception, according to Scripture, to think you can hear God's Word, but not actually do God's Word, and think you're good with God. It says, be doers of the Word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He goes on to say, what? For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, He is like a man observing his natural face in a what? Mirror. 
He gives an analogy here, what it's like to hear the Word of God, the law of God, God's expectations on his people, hear them but not do them. He said it's like a man who looks at a mirror. For he observes himself, then does what? Goes away and forgets what kind of man he was. He looks at it, sees it clearly, but doesn't do anything about it, and he forgets. Just goes away like nothing happened. Mm. But he says in verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, by the way, notice what he calls the word of God, the law of God. He calls it the perfect law of what? Is the law a law of bondage? According to Scripture, no, no, he says it's the law of liberty. Apparently it's there to give you something that you need, freedom from something, right? Well, you hear Christians, oh, you're not a bondage to the law, but that's not what the Bible calls the law. It says it's the perfect law of liberty. You look at it, then you do what it says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now think about this. He says the law of God is not just for looking at, but it's for actually keeping, continuing in it. Not just hearers, but doers. And he calls it the law of liberty, the law of freedom. The Apostle Paul, by the way, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7, kind of combats this issue too, of this sharp, oh, no, 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 we're under grace now, we're not under law. But look what he says about the law. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is it a sin to keep God's law? No, of course not. On the contrary, he says, notice this, I would not have known sin except through what? Law. He basically says, I would have been happy-go-lucky not even realizing I was avoiding every principle of heaven if God hadn't stepped down and said, by the way, here's what heaven is like. He's like, I praise the Lord for the law because it shows me my true condition. Again, that same idea of like looking at it, and I see, just like James said, it's like a mirror. It shows you your true condition. Paul praises the Lord for his law. Again, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. Now, why is it good to know sin? People are like, I don't want to know that I'm a sinner. <laughs> right? But the point of knowing that you're a sinner also brings the realization that for your sin, you have a Savior. I wouldn't know I need Jesus until I find out I need Jesus. Does that make sense? And he says here, no, 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 the law isn't a problem. By the way, the law was never intended to be a mechanism for salvation. It was simply supposed to be the mirror to see yourself to know that you needed salvation. Amen? I worked for a pastor one time who told me this very poignant thought. He said, you can't get people saved until you first get them lost. Right? There are plenty of people who think they're doing just fine. They don't even realize their need for a Savior. Paul says, no, 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 the beauty of the law is not because it saves you. Please, you're only saved by the blood of Jesus. But why do we even need Jesus in the first place? Because we're sinners. We've broken God's law. So he comes back again. Look at verse 7 again. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not! Exclamation point. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. And he gives an example. For I would not have known covetousness, and this law has said, you shall not covet. By the way, that's a beautiful, and it goes into a heart. It's not just an action, it's a motive. He said, I wouldn't even realize that I'm a selfish, wanting for me kind of person unless God's law told me to be selfless. Apparently, the natural heart in our fallen state has a propensity towards rebellion against God's law, to self-sufficiency, to self-aggrandizement, just like Satan. But Paul says, praise the Lord that God told me in his word that life is not supposed to be like that, that I'm supposed to be a different person. By the way, God never says, hey, just be yourself. <laughs> He says, no, no, I can change you into the self you are supposed to be. But given to our own devices, we would be covetous, adulterous, God-hating, parent-despising, murderous. All the, we would be the character of Satan. But according to God's law, we see, uh-uh. 
God has a higher standard, a higher expectation. Not that we can do it on our own, but he says, I will strengthen you. I cannot even just, I won't just call you good, I'll actually make you good. And Paul says, the law's purpose is to show me my need of a Savior. Look at this, the law is like a what? Mirror, because it shows you your need or your true, let's say, your true condition. It shows you your true condition. Even more clearly in the book of Galatians, look at the same Apostle Paul, what he explains in the book of Galatians, why the law is so important and why it's the standard of judgment as Jesus is preparing to return to this earth. Galatians chapter 3. And verse 24. Therefore, the law was our what? Tutor to do what? To bring us to Christ. The law is not our Savior, but it simply brings us to our Savior. It shows us who our Savior is, and by contrast, what we lack. It shows our true condition. For the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. It's a beautiful thought. It brings us to Jesus. Now let's go into the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, I think Jesus says it the most succinctly, the most clearly. We've taken a whole sermon on this, and Jesus wraps it up in one sentence. He has a way of doing that, do you notice? He takes these big, massive concepts, these big, huge principles, and boils them down to one sentence. He was the master teacher. Made it pithy, catchy, simple, and clear. John chapter 14 and verse 15. Look what the Lord himself says. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Sounds exactly like the book of Revelation, right? Those Blessed are those who keep his commandments. Here are those who keep his commandments. Here are the patients of the day, those who keep the commandments. Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's astonishing to me that there are those even in the Christian world who want to get away from the commandments but claim to love Jesus. Jesus himself says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll want to be like me. Keep my commandments. Again, note of 1 John, the same author still as the book of Revelation, but in this time 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. I'm sorry, verses 2 and 3. We'll start with verse 2. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we, what does it say? Love God and what? Do you see the consistency of this, of this, of this construction throughout Scripture? Love keeps. Just like love gives, love keeps the law because the law is a transcript of God's character of giving. We love God and keep his commandments. And notice what it says in verse 3. For this is the love of God. No wiggle room, no like, I wonder what it means. No, this is what it means to love God. That we do what? That we keep his commandments. And notice this next line, and his commandments are not burdensome. Over and over, Bible authors call the law perfect, holy, just, and good calls it the law of liberty, says God's law is not burdensome. It's amazing to me how people in the world, and sometimes even in the Christian world, will say that God's law is a burden that we have to get out from under, and Christ says, no, no, no. If you love me, keep my commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And you might be saying, how, how in the world is that possible? You already said that in our natural state, the Apostle Paul said, I wouldn't even known what covenant was. I was just who I was until the law said, hey, hey, don't do that. <laughs> How is it possible to keep his commandments? If we are built with a bent towards selfishness, how can we possibly keep a law that is in itself selflessness? How can we give to God when I want to keep for me? How can I give to my fellow man when I'm looking out for me? 
And this is where my natural inclination is. Well, look what the book of Hebrews tells us. The book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Hebrews, chapter 8. Just before the book of James, Hebrews, chapter 8. In verse 10. I want you to see this, that it's in your Bible too. After he starts talking about the Old Testament, he then transitions to the New Testament. And notice what doesn't change. The law is the same. There's one thing different though. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So what he's defining, he's about to explain now, is the new covenant. Yes? Here it is. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put what? My laws in the trash. Is that what he says? The new covenant, I will put my law in the trash. You do whatever you want. Just claim to have your ticket to heaven. You do. No, 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 no. Same law, new location. Again, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their what? mind, and I will write them on their hearts. I'm actually going to change you to be more like me. That transcript of my character, who I am, that God of love, that God who gives, that selfless me, I'll make into you. I'll write them on your mind so that you'll understand. And notice it's not just a feeling either. Some people say, well, love is just feeling, do whatever. No, no, no. He's like, you will be able to understand it. It makes sense. I'll write them on your mind and on your heart, it'll become who you are. I'll actually make a new you. Not just write good on paper, but I'll actually make you good in person. It's not just a transaction. It's a transformation. He wants to actually restore us into his image. Thus he says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Mm. So let's go to our fill-in-the-blank as we come to a close tonight. What's new about the new covenant is not its law. It's not like there was an old covenant with an old law and we realized God said, you know what was wrong? That law was broken. I need to fix the law. No, no, there was nothing wrong with the law. Perfect, holy, just, and good. Perfect law of liberty, and it's not burdensome. The law was fine. What's new about the new covenant is not its law, but its location. He said, I don't want us to be the God that you look at. I want to be God that you become like, and there's only one way to make that. Abide in me, he says, and you'll become like me. I'll write it on your heart and on your mind. Which brings us to the second statement here. God promises freedom not from the law, but freedom for the law. Let me explain what I mean there. There's even a lot of Christians who will say, no, no, you're free from the law, brother. That's not true. You're free in Christ so that you can become the character of God that's defined in that law. He sets you free from the law of sin and death. And from its penalty, praise God. But now you are free to become like Jesus. And Jesus is simply the fulfillment of God's law. In fact, Jesus said, do not think, we saw this the other night, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, right? He didn't say, oh, there's the old and I came to break it and smash it and now I'm the whole. No, no, no. He said, don't think that I came to do that. I came to fulfill I want to show you what it looks like in person. And he loved us, and he gave himself for us. And he said, now I want you to do the same. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. God promises us freedom, not from the law, but freedom for the law. Let's go to our third statement. God wants us to keep his law, not so he'll love us. By the way, that would be legalism. If God says, I will love you when you do. No, no, no. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Amen? Notice, for God so loved the world that he gave. Which comes first, the loving? Yes. For God so loved the world that he gave. His giving of Christ is not a way that, all right, now you can get my love. No, no, no. He's loved us with an everlasting love, Scripture says. God wants us to keep his law, not so he'll love us, but because we trust he already does. Because we trust that he loves us already, we'll respond to that love by keeping his commandments. Jesus said so simply, if you love me, keep my commandments. I've already loved you. I've already given myself. Now my question is, do you love me back? Is it just in word only? Or do you actually want to become the righteousness described in this law? Do you want to become Christ-like? Or do you just want a transaction to get in? Or do you want the full transformation to fit you into the kingdom of heaven? Which brings us to this final point. While God has absolutely no interest in legalism, right? Keeping the law so I can get in. Keeping the law so that he'll love me. If I work my way. No, no, no. God has no interest in legalism. He has every expectation of loyalty. He has every expectation of loyalty. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is not legalism, friends. This is faithfulness. This is fidelity. This is honorability. This is loyalty to our Creator. Final text tonight. Psalm 119, verse 174. 119th Psalm. An entire Psalm. The longest chapter in all the Bible, by the way, is a beautiful poem to the greatness of God's law. And notice what it says in Psalm 119, verse 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my what? Delight. It's not a burden. It's not imperfect. It's not old. It's fresh every day. And he says, I long for your salvation, that salvation, that love of Christ manifests itself in obedience to your law. Let me ask you a question tonight. Has tonight's presentation been crystal clear? Please raise your hand. God, Praise God. That's wonderful. Now I'm going to ask another question. If it has been clear and you want to say to the Lord tonight, yes, Lord, I want to be faithful to you. I want to be more faithful than you ever. I want to increase my faithfulness. I want to learn to love you. I may not even love it yet, but I want to see in your law the beauty of who you are. And I want to become that through your power. You want to recommit to your fidelity to Christ. Would you stand with us today? Would you stand up and say, Lord, I want to commit. I'm in. I'm in. I may not be there yet, but I see the matchless charms of Christ. I see the beauty of your character. I see who you are. And I see my need. I'm not there yet, but I want to get there through your power. Now let me ask you a third question. There may be some of you here tonight who are struggling to keep God's law. There might be something that you know God's word asks you to do. Some part of your character that is not like your Savior's. Some habit you just can't seem to break some imperfection that just keeps coming back, a thorn in your flesh. I don't know if it's pride. I don't know if it's short temper. I don't know if it's a lustful addiction. I don't know if it's smoking, drinking, unhealthy. I don't know what it is, but there's something that's keeping you bound that according to God's law, he wants you to be free from. And tonight you want to say, I want to be done with that. I want to get, I want to get closer to Jesus. I want to become more like him. And I want to see in your law, that perfect law of liberty. I want freedom. And I know, I've tried it up. I cannot, cannot do it on my own. But tonight, Lord, I want your power. I'm done with me. I'm going to deny myself and let you take over. I want freedom from this thing. I want to be more like Jesus. If that is your prayer, we're going to sing this little closing hymn tonight. I believe it's hymn number what? 590. If you to take out your... Your, your hymn books there. Hymn number 590. Probably a familiar hymn. Trust and obey. 
But if that's what you want to do tonight, and you want special prayer to say, Lord, I want to be faithful to you, regardless of what my family thinks, regardless of my friends, regardless of my old habits, I'm ready to commit, I'm all in. It might even be your first time, it might be the hundredth time, but you say, Lord, this is my time, and I have been unfaithful in some area. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and get in the microphone and say what your issue is. But if there's something, you say, Lord, I need your strength. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory. I need prayer. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.